before we get started, there is a content warning on this episode as we do discuss suicide ideation. Hey, awesome people. Welcome to episode 13 of the second season of Lantern. We're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Emily Flood, an ethical investment analyst at Future Super, which is Australia's first fossil-free superannuation fund, which invests ethically to create a more sustainable future. Together, we discuss the vast potential for superannuation funds to be used as a force for good, the ethical investment principles of Future Super, grappling with privilege and perfectionism in the social impact space in particular, and entering a career pathway beyond your area of study. This is a really good uh, conversation, so I hope you enjoy. As soon as you both reached out to me, I realized that that was going to be one of the questions that would come up. I also realized that I hadn't ever really had to answer a question like that. And it made me think a lot about what I was wanting to do with this conversation and what I wanted people to be able to take away from hearing about me. And generally, I did quite a bit of research about what there is out there in terms of constructing a conversation or a discussion and talking about yourself and how you can convey a particular message. There's generally consensus about how you can construct something like that. Either you have a particular epiphany to illustrate a core value or you are overcome a certain obstacle and you use that as a storytelling device to convey something about yourself that you want people to connect to. And you guys will have had a lot of amazing conversations with people where they use those devices and really help show just what amazing people they are and what they've been able to achieve in the world. But when I listen to those stories, I don't actually often identify with them because rather than sort of that A to B to C format, I kind of feel like I had a bit of a detour in there and I went A to B to C to D to E. So what I wanted to talk about was my story accounting for that detour and accounting for that complexity. But to begin with, there's two basic things I'd like people to know about me. One is that I'm always curious and always asking questions and I like to learn about the world. And two is that uh, fairness matters deeply to me. Classic middle child syndrome. I, I really want things to be fair and as fair as possible. For example, when I was a kid, I think I was about four when Toy Story came out and I was pretty sure it was all make-believe but there was a chance it wasn't and all of my toys were sentient and it really freaked me out because I definitely had a favourite toy. His name was Rusty the dog. He was perfect for me in every way but I was worried that I was being unkind to the rest of my toys so I ended up having a, a roster to play with my toys equally so that no one felt left out. And if you can't tell from that particular anecdote, I had a very privileged upbringing. I was safe and I didn't have much to threaten me growing up. I was financially secure. I got to go to a private high school. My family was really loving and supportive, but I was also able to realize how unusual that was in the world. And I saw a lot of the suffering that was out there. And Normally when you're telling a story like this, there's an epiphany and you realize, you know, oh, it's my calling. I want the world to be fair. But for me, that's not really what happened. I began to feel like my good luck and privilege was something that I didn't deserve. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect, to make up for that. I went through quite a dark phase and I put a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect at school, to look perfect. I, I had very unhealthy body image 
And I felt very deeply that if somebody else, somebody better had been born with my privilege, they could have been achieving a lot more than what I was doing and that I should be able to do better and I should be able to achieve more. And then eventually got to the point where I started to think that the world would be better without me in it. And really what stands between me and being like a suicide statistic are the people that help me rediscover my agency and stop thinking in terms of what I should be doing and thinking instead about what I could do. I mean, they weren't perfect people, but I could see that they were doing good things and that meant maybe I didn't need to be perfect to achieve good things as well. So they helped me understand that value of at least trying. And inspired by them, I started to think about the ways I could make the world better by being me and looking at things like the fact that I was always curious, that I enjoyed working on problems. I enjoyed researching. So I used that to read about the ways that people were making the world better. As part of that study, I realized that philanthropy really stood out to me because of the autonomy that philanthropists have with their grants and with their ability to direct funding. Because, I mean, in a world with capitalism and power, the way it works, money is power and philanthropy is a way of using that money for good. But despite that opportunity that philanthropy presents, there's still so much suffering in the world. So I started to think, well, maybe if we had a way of making that process, philanthropy more effective, then we could make the world better. And the way I had of learning and thinking and being quite generalist in my interests, maybe that would help me help make them more effective. Uh, So I signed up for the Masters of Social Impact course, which is through the Centre of Social Impact, because I wanted to learn from the space. Um, I was the youngest person in the cohort of students. Most of them were doing the whole midlife crisis career swap to not-for-profit. I'm, I'm very efficient. I didn't need to wait to midlife for me to have my crisis. <laughs> um, so I was studying and then I was also applying for at least 100 jobs. I'd pin it at closer to 200 probably um, in the not-for-profit space and in the grant-making space. And eventually I got a job with an organisation that consulted on corporate social responsibility and family philanthropy. And they did some really interesting things with, um, for instance, payroll giving, which is where you can make donations from your pay. So tax benefits automatically get applied in Australia. And it's also a much more efficient way of fundraising for the charity. But they also had a division that worked on grant making and philanthropy. And I started off in the customer service team, but I moved quite quickly into that philanthropy and grant making space and had an opportunity to work with a lot of amazing people that were doing some really brilliant things, both on the side of funding, but also on the side of delivering services directly to people. And I was finding that really fulfilling. But then the Future Super role became available and uh, Future Super is an organisation that uses superannuation or pension money to invest ethically but also deliver money into impact projects like renewable infrastructure. And I realised that that model was a way of bringing that power of money and of funding change to everyday people like myself that wouldn't normally have sufficient capital to deliver funding the way philanthropists did, which meant that people 
that have, for instance, real-world experience of global warming and droughts could then invest in renewable technology and they didn't have to wait for someone with more power than them to act on their behalf. I mean, in terms of that power, Australians have more than $2.8 trillion in superannuation money, which is a number with sufficient zeros that most people don't even feel like it has any meaning. Um, so to put it into perspective, that's 50 times the value of what's in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, which is one of the largest philanthropic organisations in the world. It's also nearly five times as much as what's been committed by the entirety of the Giving Pledge, $600 billion, which are the commitments made by the world's wealthiest people to philanthropic donations. 7% of it is enough to fully transition Australia to a renewable economy. And so with something like superannuation, people like me, people like you, um, we don't need to wait for someone wealthy to listen to us to make change possible. We have agency and resources that when we pull them together, we can actually have that same power that they would have without thinking about it. And I think that's such a powerful thing to have access to. And it's something I'm really passionate about connecting people to. I suppose that self-awareness that you had and knowing where your values aligned and therefore finding a pathway and a career that sort of aligned with all those things you felt. Again, you did touch on this earlier, but I guess what were the steps you sort of took to make sure that that alignment worked in your work so you weren't just working nine to five at a place that you didn't enjoy and that you were actively contributing to what you felt was important in the world? It was definitely something that took time to understand. And I think a helpful lens when you're thinking about your career and your life, when you're trying to build it up, is to remember that careers and work and what people in our generation, the next generation, are experiencing in terms of designing their lives and their careers, it's something that's quite new to humanity and it's not something that's always been and people haven't always known that they're going to have a career or that they're going to be working nine to five. That's quite, that's something that's happened in the past century or so. And so when you're trying to figure out what you value, you shouldn't just think about it in terms of building a career. It should also be in the way you want to work with people and the sorts of relationships you want to foster and looking not just at the hard skills that you're trying to develop, but the things that make you most passionate might not be knowledge. It might be a way of working. And once you have that understanding of yourself, that's a really good place to start with what you want to build from that. I mean, I don't have a strict commerce or economics background, but I've ended up in the financial services because I was able to figure out that I enjoyed problem solving and I was able to understand that the sorts of problem solving I was doing in one role could translate into another and that everything else is just, you know, you, you learn what you need to learn along the way at work. It's never just a, you go in knowing everything. It's very easy to get knowledge. What you need to work on is the skills that help you build that up. I think it's probably about time that we sort of go into your role a little bit more about Future Super. Mm. So to start that off, can you please give us a bit of an understanding of, and I guess whatever order makes more sense for you, what Future Super does and I guess how superannuation and things like that 
probably work more broadly in the space? I might start with super more broadly so that I can differentiate what makes future super special. In Australia, superannuation is a set amount of your wage that gets set aside for retirement. And then superannuation funds are responsible for investing that money so that you have as much as possible when you come to retire. Generally, in the financial services space, the common wisdom is that the stakeholder that you have a moral obligation to is the person that's investing the investor. And so you should for all intensive purposes, always invest only with the aim of generating as much financial return for that individual as possible. Future Super was born out of the fossil fuel divestment movement and it became about what is actually ethical to invest in. Is investing in fossil fuels when we know that they're causing harm to the world, is that really the best outcome for the person you're investing on behalf of, particularly for something long-term like superannuation. And that idea of investments having a real-world impact and what should you stay out of, but also what should you put the money into instead is what underpins future super and the financial decisions that we make. So we have ethical and moral values that we say this is what we think about when we're investing your super, that's things like keeping your money out of fossil fuels and the industries and companies that support fossil fuel extraction and use. But it's also things like let's not invest in armaments or tobacco or gambling, things that are causing social and environmental harm. Like I don't want to retire knowing that some of that retirement came from people's ability to sell bombs. And I think most people feel that way and there's less lay person or everyday person awareness of just how separated from ethics uh, investment decisions are. And so my role at Future Super is about translating those moral and ethical commitments into ways of um, assessing companies and then helping the rest of the investment team make investment decisions informed by those values. How does the organization, I guess, go about defining those values? Because I guess sometimes on an individual level, someone's kind of moral priorities or ethical perception of the world might be nuanced. And I guess, how do you come up with a set of values or factors that you think would be important for a large number of Australians. And I guess the second question on top of that is, once you've set those values, how do you go about in practice using them to decide which businesses you're going to invest in? Both very good questions. I mean, I joined the team once the values had generally already been set. Future Super fairly obviously has quite a progressive agenda. So, And generally within the progressive space, there are common themes of values that underscore most people's positions and opinions about the world. So most people would agree that gambling causes more social harm than it causes good. Most people would agree that tobacco is not an ethical industry. And so we built up positions on as many different ethical scenarios as possible. That includes things like detention centres and asylum seeking to uh, live animal export. And we said, okay, this is where we stand on it. And if people agree with that basic premise, 
or they agree with our premises more than other people's premises, then they can become members and benefit from the screens that are built up on those values. And maybe they're not as passionate as us about gambling. Maybe they think it's not such a big problem. But if they care enough about the rest of the values and they're also staying out of gambling, then there are worse things in the world for people. So I think that sort of idea of, okay, this is what we believe and we're sticking by what we believe. We're not going to apologise for it. We believe that fossil fuels are harmful and we don't think that people should be profiting from that or investing in it. And if you agree with us, great, please join us. And if you don't, then there's plenty of other options out there. We're the first fossil fuel-free fund in Australia. So you take your pick for anyone else. <laughs> um, so there is quite a strong advocacy component to Future Super's role in the superannuation industry. We're looking at not only helping our members divest and invest ethically, but we're hoping that we are almost a first domino. Once other super funds see people moving to us, they might enact some of the ethical screens that we have and that would have a wider impact even than what we can have directly. I guess what do you think separates the way Future Super invests or you know, how the organisation is run compared to, I guess, a lot of the, the large super funds have now introduced sustainable or eco options. I know Australian Super has one, uh, HESTA has one, and then there are other funds like Australian Ethical, which have a similar process. Okay, this is where I'm going to stick a disclaimer. I'm not giving specific financial <laughs> advice or advising anyone move anywhere in particular. Um, so there's a couple of different things that we do that are really valuable. One of them is the fact that we keep our investment decisions in-house. So we know who we're invested in and who we're not invested in. And that's not an industry standard. They, they know who is making their investment decisions, but they might not be able to say whether or not they are invested in a particular stock. So that's one of the components that make us special. The second is that we follow a rules-based methodology. So that means that we're applying our ethical screens in a way at the earliest possible stage in our investment decision-making process and following criteria and saying, yes, we want to invest in a particular industry based on this criteria. And then once we've made that decision, that's sort of set. If you flip it and say, oh, we're interested in this company, does it pass the ethical screen? You're moving towards confirmation bias because you know that you want a particular outcome. So it almost becomes whether or not you can justify investing in a particular stock. And that's when you get onto a slippery slope. And that third and final piece is that we reserve most of our active investment decisions around fixed interest and alternatives, which are debt-based investing generally and sort of active non-listed shares, just trying to not use too much jargon here. So companies or organisations or projects that you can't trade on the stock exchange or providing loans to companies that are trying to start up or trying to invest in new technology. We make most of our active decisions, investment decisions in those two spaces, which means that we're able to invest in new renewable infrastructure in Australia and social impact bonds and making 
positive impacts and social impact in the world. If you're investing in, say, renewable companies or new technologies or social impact bonds, what things about those investments do you think it's important to be critical of or are some drawbacks? Because is it simply the case, okay, you know, this is a renewable technology, you know, this is going to do good for the environment, let's all go in all guns blazing, or but what's, I guess, the nuance in terms of once you've decided, okay, this is ethical, yeah, I, I don't even know how to phrase that, if, if that makes sense. Okay, I think it does. So when you're making an investment decision, particularly as a superannuation fund, you do have that fiduciary duty or that duty to your members to make sure that they're going to end up with the best possible financial outcomes for their retirement. So we always have to balance our investment decisions on whether or not something is a good investment long term. So if you're looking at a solar farm, you still have to decide whether or not it's a financially viable investment. And so you can't basically have a straight grant making approach because that's people's investment in their future. You can't just give that away. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's definitely a part of the decision making process. And then the other side of it is what have you committed to to your members and what are you trying to achieve with the money that you have available and what's the best way of using that to to create that outcome and so when you're thinking along those lines having that clarity that we strive for is really important because it means we understand that we're trying to one of our core issues is climate change and global warming so we want to make financial decisions that also reflect that desire to not live in a world where we've got had such terrible global warming that you and I are waiting through our retirement because the sea levels have risen so much. <laughs> um, and that includes trying to invest in the renewable infrastructure as long as the Australian government isn't willing to make those investments for us. I had a quick question around sort of the ethical screening process mm. and I'm Curious to know, I guess, how that works in terms of balance. So, like, for example, say if there was some company that you're looking to invest in and you did the ethical screening, mm. say, for example, there were very really good actors in terms of sustainability and stuff like that, but you look at their board and 100% male, so mm. less ethical in terms of gender equality. How does that work? Is it in the sense that there has to be minimum requirements for all these different aspects of ethics or can there be a little bit more flexibility in terms of, okay, they're very good in this, not so good in this, but overall they're still ethical enough for us to invest in. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. And actually that's a really good um, question because it brings to light something that I've been intending to speak about, which is how you can check whether an ethical screen is what many of us call true to label or deep green. And so in terms of how we approach something, we have hard lines of what we will and we won't accept. And we have those across all of the different ethical categories we have, and you have to pass all of them to be included in whether or not we'll invest. And that's part of that power of that rules-based investment strategy that I was talking about. And for instance, we do have, particularly with our Australian shares, that you need to have at least one female board member 
because it's a very low ask, particularly in our social and cultural and economic environment in Australia for a company to have at least one qualified woman to be on their board. There's plenty of women that can be effective board members. Choosing not to have a woman on your board is a political and social statement nowadays because it's not a lack of talent. It's a lack of desire to find that talent. And we're quite clear on that. And so if I saw a company that was otherwise doing good things, but they had an all-male board, they'd get wiped off the list. So in terms of the actual process, though, that you follow when you're doing a screen like this, it's you're trying to be as efficient and effective as possible. So you have screens that are based on industry. So things like, okay, we know that we don't want to invest in fossil fuels, so we're going to wipe out anyone that comes up in the oil and gas industry. And that's just like a hardline thing. And then once you get companies that pass through that and some of the financial criteria, then you do the deep dive into whether or not they tick the rest of the boxes. Like, oh, do they have exposure through their revenue to something that's unethical? For instance, the Woolworths Group, uh, which is, you know, Safeways or Woolworths and like BWS, they, they have a number of different uh, subsidiaries. There's many ways you can screen them out. But one of them is they're, they're Australia's largest pokies operator or gambling machine operator. If you have just a set revenue cap where you say, okay, that company overall can't have more than 10% allocation or revenue from gambling, then they'd still get through despite having that massive negative social impact within Australia. So how people apply screens and what limits they set are really telling. And one of the ways you can double check that is looking at who they're actually invested in and how different that is to whether or not they had applied those uh, ethical screens. So you can have people say, we have a fossil fuel screen, but it's like a 50% revenue screen. So there's plenty of companies that are still causing environmental harm and social harm that fit within that screen. So it's really helpful if you're uncertain about a particular organisation or investment strategy to look at who they say they're invested in and whether or not that seems to align with what they're saying they're trying to get out of. And this might speak more to my ignorance of the sector more broadly, but I'm, is there any sort of, I guess, requirements for, say, the superannuation groups to be publicly making their filters like that available or can you only really assess it through that indirect way of looking at the companies that they're already invested in? Disclosure, particularly in the Australian superannuation industry, is not wonderful. (laughs) Um, So often you do want to look at the actual investments made, but there are organisations and non-profits that help with that work that understand that that's a need and that not everyone has time like I do to go deep diving into whether or not somebody has invested in oil because, you know, they have a life to live and this isn't that relevant to their day-to-day and it's more important that they cook dinner than it is they spend their time doing that when one person could do it and make it available to many people. And so Market Forces, for instance, has some great material available online that people can use to check and compare whether one of the companies they're looking at or banks as well are another area of concern. You can 
access a resource like market forces and see whether or not the investment decisions made by those entities align with your values. I guess I want to put this bluntly. I guess superannuation isn't the most sexy thing to talk about in terms of social impact. Oh, I know. Uh, Yeah. So I guess acknowledging that, how do you get people to care about super? Because obviously from the conversation we've had so far, it's such an important source of capital, right? I at least in my experience, I haven't come across too many people who are out there on the front line yelling about getting super to be ethical, right? Is that part of what uh, Future Super does at all? Or like, how does that kind of work? Definitely. I mean, if we couldn't convince anyone that it matters, then no one would join us. <laughs> um, but it it's definitely something that comes up. It's not easy to connect people with their super because the whole industry is designed in a way that's as an individual, you feel very separated from your superannuation right up until the point in which you need to use it. And it almost doesn't feel like yours. It's never in your bank account. It's always somewhere else. But I think having an understanding of it as something that's yours and something that you can control is really powerful. And understanding that For instance, one of the really cool recent innovations in philanthropy and bringing it to the masses is giving circles, for instance, right? So say you get 100 people each donating $1,000 to this giving circle, suddenly there's $100,000 that they can use to make a donation to a particular course that they agree on. And that $100,000 has a lot more power than a hundred different donations to different organizations of $1,000, according to the general consensus. When you look at super and the sheer size of what it can achieve in the world and like what that translates to and the fact that I don't even have to put aside $1,000 because that money's already been put aside for me and I can use that and I can vote with that money and that power that it like translates to that's really nice it's it's a nice feeling to suddenly go oh actually you know i have a resource that i'd never thought about before and i can use it to make the world better and i don't need to significantly change my life to achieve that that's quite a cool thing to have at our disposal and it's quite an easy thing to achieve like changing your super nowadays in australia You can achieve it with an online form that takes two to five minutes to complete. And then all of your different super accounts can be rolled over into a single account. It's not something that's difficult. Um, It's just something that takes awareness and a desire for action. And I think connecting people to that story is really important and it's something that we're working on. It's definitely not an intuitive step for most people to make. And in terms of the i guess returns on say an ethical fund versus a more traditional fund is there always going to be i guess a lower return if if you put these ethical screens in place or can you achieve exceed or match or get pretty close to returns for a more traditional investment strategy i mean there's quite a lot of literature out there nowadays that shows that ethically screened funds and options have a tendency towards outperformance, which is they deliver better investment results. The Thomson Reuters Fossil Fuel Free Index, which is like the ASX 200 in Australia or the top largest 200 companies in Australia, 
minus the companies in fossil fuels. Uh, if you had $100,000 sitting in that, you would have done $8,000 better than if you just invested in the SX200 last year. So there's a misconception about what ethical screening means. And I think the other side of the financial services industry to keep in mind is that you get the economy of scale. So the more money, the more funds sitting in a superannuation fund, the lower the fees need to be to keep it operational. So as we've grown, we've cut our fees, but that's something that as we continue to grow, we'll be able to continue to reduce fees. And so it's not because people are unethical that they're able to deliver low fees or deliver high returns. It's because they are established within the market and they have sufficient sources of income and sufficient size that they can afford to do that. And as ethical investing becomes more of a force onto itself, it's not an advantage that uh, unethical investing will have for long. And in terms of a, a broader societal level, moving towards an industry that takes these kind of ethical screens as a, as a norm, how do you think we as individuals can do that most effectively? Obviously, we have the option of switching to a, an ethical fund or an ethical investment type within our current fund. But are there any other ways you think, yeah, we, we as individuals can try and push this as something that's important to us as super fund holders? Absolutely. Demand excellence from the people that are investing your money. If they say that they're investing ethically, but then you see that they have made investment decisions that don't align with what they're telling you about, call them on it. You don't need to switch if you're passionate about staying with a particular fund. But if you also say, look, you say you're you're screening out fossil fuels, but you're still in natural gas, why are you doing this? That's a really powerful conversation that can happen and can happen from within as well as without. So that's definitely one of the things because it's very easy in the ethical investment space as it's quite young for people to talk a good game but not actually necessarily fully deliver on what people may expect from them. For instance, responsible investing doesn't necessarily mean that you'll stay out of unethical things. Often it means you'll think about getting out of something that's unethical. Um, And I think if you were to ask me five years ago if I thought investing responsibly would mean that I was staying out of unethical things, I would have said yeah, of course. What what else would that mean? And I think the investment industry is like the egg aisle at the supermarket. You can have cage-free eggs that are still barn eggs where the chickens are still mistreated. You can have farm fresh eggs, which is just caged eggs, or you can have free range eggs, or you can have organic eggs. And All of these different things, these different ways of talking about it to make something ugly seem less ugly. I think that's a helpful way of looking at the financial services world. And really, if you pay attention to the terminology and you pay attention to what people are, whether people are acting in line with what they're saying, and you call them out when they're not, that's when we as consumers have power. We might wrap up there and just ask our final two questions that we like to ask so the fact that our audience are all sort of young people keen on social impact and things like that is there anything any other messages you 
might want to leave with our audience? And beyond that, are there any sort of books or media or film that you'd recommend to our audience as well that might help them on their journey? From a personal perspective, I'd say one of the most helpful things for me to have learned today has been that as much as I want to fit into a group and be like my peers and the people I respect, often the people I respect respect them because of the ways that they're different and unique and the ways they're found to leverage that. As a result, what I have to offer and what you have to offer is not how I'm like anyone else, but how I'm different. And for me, that includes being super geeky and really enjoying research, but it also means the ways I've learned to look at the world through my experience with depression. And I think when you find what sets you apart, even if it makes you really awkward, even if it's something that you have difficult being okay with, learning to accept that and learning to make it something that's powerful is really valuable to yourself, but also to the people around you. And it's worth putting the time and effort into finding that and making the most of it. And then in terms of books and things, I've got a very long list, but I'll try and keep it short. (laughs) If you're interested in finance and thinking about how money and development and capitalism affects the world, Donut Economics by Kate Raworth is really worth reading or even just a quick Google and she's got a blog. It's fantastic. You can check that out as well. I think that's a very useful frame for thinking about economics and social impact and environmental impact. In terms of other really good books I've had recommended to me recently, uh, Don't Think of an Elephant, the newer version by George Lakoff, Lakoff, I don't know how to say his last name, really was helpful in challenging how I think and talk about social change. And so was Rules for Radicals by Saul Dielinski. And then just in terms of that whole idea of challenging how you think about the world and whether or not knowledge that comes from the Enlightenment school versus traditional knowledge and the value that can play in the world. Dark EMU by Bruce Pascoe is really amazing as well. Thank you so much for your time, Emily. I know we did go a little bit over, so I really do appreciate it. Uh, Absolutely. It's been really fun speaking with you all. And obviously, if ever you or anyone else wants to reach out to me, I am clearly someone that likes to talk. (laughs) And I really believe in the power of being there for other people so i'm happy to share my email address if anyone wants to reach out to me and we'll definitely chuck that in the show notes so people know that they can always reach out 